You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Very excited to be with you today to talk about uh, our liturgy again. Um, I first actually want to point out to you what's on your seat. It's been about a year and a half worth, uh, if you were here for the previous class like a year and a half ago, uh, I said this was coming in a few months. Fast forward a year and a half and you've got this. Um, it's a commentary and guide to our liturgy. It's got uh, the leaflets of both a kind of generic morning prayer service and a generic Holy Communion service as well in this, along with introductions. What you'll see if you just open up to any middle page or so, is that the way it's laid out is you've got the liturgy on the left, and you've got commentary, kind of choice commentary on the right, to help explain why we do what we do and what it's all about. This is really the first generation of what will probably go through many revisions, but this has been a labor of love by a bunch of people at our church, and um, something that I really care about as someone who wants you all and wants myself as a Christian to hear the gospel clearly in the liturgy. And in a way, it's a distillation of the content that I'm going to be teaching over the next four weeks together. But I hope and pray that this is valuable. If you're a family, I'd say grab one. And uh, if there's any left, just kind of leave them in the back. But, you know, one per family unit. That way we can be a good steward of our resources as well. So uh, really grateful. This is my third time teaching this. The first time was an exhausting nine-week course. Um, And the second time was a four-week course about a year ago, actually. And uh, now I'm teaching it again. And each time, there's a little bit of evolution in what I feel compelled to teach based on where church is at. But what we want to do is be able to give you all an overview of the liturgy, an overview of uh, what it all means, what we're doing here, and why we're doing it. There is a presenting concern. Before we go to prayer, there's just a presenting concern. And the presenting concern for us is that in an environment where things are so repetitious, where we do the same thing every week, it can become dead. And the irony of the fact that the critique among broader Christendom of liturgical churches like ours is that it's dead. You know, the irony of that critique is that those who architected our prayer book had the very opposite perspective on what this liturgy was supposed to do. In fact, if you were to just sort of Google, because, you know, you can get online versions of the Book of Common Prayer. If you just search the word heart throughout the Book of Common Prayer, you'd realize just how important it was that this was something that penetrated and inflamed hearts and that this was something that was actually meaningful and not just something we go through the motions for. And that's really what we're going to do today. And so I've got some fancy slides that I want to walk us through because I think hopefully they're not just cheesy and uh, unhelpful, but really something that will aid us as we talk about this. But we've got two goals with this class, and the first, uh, first goal of this class is to help us better connect head and heart. So it's not merely a head exercise as we read through these old words that sometimes fly by us way too fast. I mean, the goal is that these, these things would be connected for us and that we would, in the words of the prayer book, Pray the liturgy heartily, heartily, because Cranmer's purpose for worship 
And this comes from his original preface to the first English Book of Common Prayer. This was the, the first time that uh, English-speaking worlds could praise and pray in their mother tongue in a public setting. And this is what he wrote in that preface. His purpose for worship was, quote, that the people should continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God and be the more inflamed with love for his true religion. We want you. Cranmer wants you. The reformers wanted you. God wants you to be set ablaze, to be on fire with Pentecostal power by what we pray and what we do. See, there's no disjunct between our emotions and our intellect. You hear it every time our communion liturgy begins. Love the Lord your God with everything. You don't set aside something when you come into the sanctuary to worship with the people of God and gathered worship. You love God with everything. And the architects of this prayer book were hopeful and prayerful that as you engage this liturgy week in and week out, as it bore itself into your soul by repetition, that you would be more inflamed with love for Jesus Christ because you apprehended his love for you. And the second goal for this class is to tune our ears to hear the gospel. There's a lot of things that we could hear and could see in worship. Our goal with this commentary and guide to our liturgy and our goal with this class is to sharpen our focus because there are 10,000 distractions that I'll just tell you the devil would love for you to fixate on. But the Lord and his Holy Spirit would have us just at his baptism. What was the Holy Spirit present to do at his baptism? To shine like a spotlight on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's very much what the Holy Spirit is present to do when we worship, is to shine a spotlight on Jesus Christ. So the goal of this class is to give us glasses, lenses, hearing aids, so that the gospel would be more clear to us, that we would be tuned so that when we go into morning prayer or Holy Communion next week, we're hearing the gospel more clearly, and we're loving Jesus more because we hear it. That would be the end game goal. What is the gospel? The gospel is that word about the finished work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, that Jesus died for you, that Jesus rose for you. It's, it's getting those glasses and those hearing aids to hear those things. So let us pray. Our Father, we just acknowledge that we can do nothing apart from your Holy Spirit coming to us. So we ask even now as we're, we're learning and as I'm talking, that your Holy Spirit would come and till the ground of our hearts and uh, make furrows so that the seeds of the gospel in our liturgy might be planted so that we might be fruitful trees, just like Psalm 1 said, planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Amen. Four weeks. This week, we're going to overview the Book of Common Prayer. Next week, we're going to go over morning prayer, and I'm going to add a little... Abby doesn't even know this, but I'm going to make her do a little... It's going to sound cheesy, but I think it's going to work. Do a little skit with me at the beginning. She doesn't know this, uh, but I think it's going to serve to illustrate morning prayer in a really fun way. Uh, And then the last two weeks, we're going to go over our Holy Communion liturgy. This book, um, I'd recommend it to you. It's a little bit heady. It's philosophical. But the reason I start with it is because when I read it in 2009, it's a book called Desiring the Kingdom by James K.A. Smith, or Jamie Smith is what he's called. I read it in 2009, a book that came out in 2007. It radically altered the way that I view the liturgy and the way that I view what happens to you and to me 
as we engage in these repetitions. Because sort of the macro picture of the book is that you and I are desire-based creatures. We're not heads on sticks, actually. We operate, as Augustine interpreted the scriptures would say, we operate so much more out of the, the base desires of our heart. It compels us. Just like what Ashley Knoll, the great Cranmer scholar, said about uh, the summary of Cranmer's theology. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Always in that order. I could give you a thousand illustrations, from liturgy to ice cream to anything else, of the way this all works. But Smith's contention was that you and I engage in liturgical life, and I put that in quotes, in 10,000 ways out there in the world. He gives example after example, the shopping mall, the sports stadium, of the ways that you and I engage in repetition and ritual. And this repetition and ritual is not innocuous. It shapes us. It makes us into certain kinds of desiring beings. And the question he asks is, do these rituals shape us into people who, in his words, desire the kingdom? In other words, are gospel-oriented, are oriented toward our Lord and Savior, or do they malform you? And one of the contentions he makes at the end of the book is that we need a Christian liturgy in our worship services that's robust enough to counter all those competing liturgies that shape and vie for the affections of your soul. So part of the reason that we're going to be talking about repetition, part of the reason that we're going to be talking about the liturgy and why it's meaningful is because As it grows dull, it stops sharpening your heart and shaping you into the kind of Christian who is, well, shaped in the image of Jesus Christ. Because the hope is that as we do this week in and week out, it shapes the way that you relate to God. And the way that you relate to God is almost like a a very human and open and heartfelt form of the structures of our liturgy. One very real example from my life. Um, When I was first starting to engage liturgies that involve things like confession of sin and assurance of pardon, when I was in worship services where this was my week-in and week-out routine, I can tell you my life before that and my life after that. This is what my life was before that. Walking throughout the week, normal, saint, sinner, kid. And I would sin in a way where the conviction of the Holy Spirit would come over me. I realized, gosh, I messed up there. And my default mode of dealing with that was to sort of show God how serious I was about the guilt of my sin. And so I'd feel guilty for a long time. I'd punish myself by sort of uh, removing myself from situations and kind of being an ascetic. And sort of, in a way, I was kind of atoning for my sin. I was saying, God, I'm serious. I will not do this again. Well, lo and behold, next week or next month or next year, same thing happens again. I find myself in that same pace. That was my Christian M.O., As I started uh, attending a church that bore these rhythms into me, the way I related to Jesus changed. And the way I related to Jesus actually became more gospel-centered, more biblical, more Christian. Because the way I just outlined is actually not a Christian way of relating to God in the midst of our sin. What it does is say, the cross wasn't enough. I need to atone for my, my sin. And so I'm going to atone by showing God how serious I am. As the reformers would say, basically presenting my works before God so that he would accept me again. The liturgy of confessing my sin and hearing a a minister declare the words of God or hearing a brother and sister declare the words of God that there's therefore now no condemnation started wearing on my soul such that the next time my patterns of sin came back to me, 
my instinct was to drop to my knees and confess, I've sinned against you, God, in thought, word, and deed, and what I've done and what I've left undone. There's no health in me. I need you. And then both by the power of the Spirit, but also through other brothers and sisters who I would confess to verbally, they would be able to give me those same words, those same words that says, in Christ, you are forgiven. See, that's a Christian way of relating to God that was born of the repetition of the liturgy in my soul, kind of what I call ruts of righteousness. I want to talk briefly about the the history of the liturgy. I want you to memorize all these dates, and we're going to have a pop quiz next week. I only throw these dates up because they're significant uh, dates in the evolution of the prayer book. And though I don't expect you to remember them, they're helpful markers to be able to talk about how what we worship with is connected to what was first given out. In 1549, you can't imagine what it was like to be a worshiper who would gather regularly for Sunday worship and not understand a thing that was being said ever if you didn't understand Latin, which basically only the upper classes did in England. So if you were a Christian, your job was to come to church, to shut up, and to watch the priest do all the action. And when a bell would ring, you'd look over and see the elevated sacramental host, and you're supposed to stand in awe. But otherwise, your job was to kind of have a private devotional along with everybody else reverently and kind of tick your worship box so that God was pleased with you and you could walk out and go on your merry way. So you can't imagine the mind-blowing shift, and you can't imagine probably the ire, because anytime there's changes in worship, it's going to uh, elicit ire. I know this well. I've been in this business a while. Um, In 1549, Thomas Cranmer rolls out the first English prayer book, and nearly immediately by declaration of law, they were required, these priests were required to read the liturgy in English. Can you imagine going into a worship service and hearing things you understood for the first time. How how powerful. Maybe maybe it would appear irreverent because, well, Latin's the holy language. Latin's the one that God loves. So maybe some people were like, I can't handle this. This is way too much contemporary language, right? I don't like this stuff. I like Latin so much more uh, because it's it's holy and it's reverent. And English is the, the sort of street language. It's what we talk to with each other. But that's not the language we use with God, is it? You know, you can imagine all those weird feelings erupting at this moment where a big shift has happened. Within short order, because Cranmer would say uh, that the 1549 prayer book was um, a half measure. It was a way of transitioning out of the Latin liturgy and into the English. There were some sort of theological gears that needed to be shifted that we might get to when we talk about the communion liturgy in particular. But because he wanted to accelerate that process of shifting those theological gears for the purpose of getting the gospel into the hearts of the English people, he quickly rolls out the second English prayer book uh, under King Edward after King Henry dies. King Edward doesn't last long, the boy king, because he dies. Uh, And then Mary, who's not a friend of the Reformation and the Protestants, takes over and quickly bans that prayer book, reinstitutes the Latin prayer book. And uh, shortly after Mary dies, Mary thinks she's pregnant, and she actually finds out it's a tumor. And she dies uh, after killing a bunch of people. Go over to England, go to Oxford, see the, the statues of the martyrs, including Thomas Cranmer, including Hugh Latimer, including 
Nicholas Ridley and these others who burned at the stake because they were, they were called heretics because they believed in the gospel. It's ultimately what it was about. Yes, it was an argument about communion, but what was underneath the communion argument was a gospel-centered argument. And that's why they died. They burned at the stake for that. So this isn't just willy-nilly stuff. It's really serious. You know, prayer book, liturgical formation, the gospel, high stakes, very high stakes, right? There was a period right before 1662, if you know your English history, uh, where Parliament was in upheaval and all kinds of weird things were happening in the kingdom. The Commonwealth was established. The Puritans took over. And the Puritans weren't necessarily enemies of the prayer book, but they didn't feel like it went far enough. And so they just said, we don't want prayer book. We want kind of freer worship here. And so for a period from about uh, 1645 until 1661, can you believe this? The Book of Common Prayer was illegal in England until it was reinstated in 1662. And it was basically a reinstatement of that original, uh, that original prayer book. We move over to our side of the pond, and this 1789, 1789, was when the first American prayer book was ratified. It's when the Episcopal Church was established kind of as a province. It was around this time of the Anglican Communion as it was growing and becoming worldwide. And this is when a first American prayer book was ratified. And already in this first American prayer book, some things, especially with the communion liturgy, were changed in what I'll just describe with a broad brush that needs a lot more explanation than this, but in a non-gospel-centered direction. Had to do with some politicking of the first archbishop who wanted to be approved as the bishop of, uh, of the American Anglican Communion and the Episcopal Church, made a deal with some bishops in Scotland who basically said, we will consecrate you as bishop if you employ our, uh, our version of the prayer book, which was different than 1662. So already when the American prayer book is established, there's some things about it that are moving the prayer book uh, into a direction that doesn't allow the clarity of the gospel to be heard as easily. That's just what I'll say at this point. The first major revision, there were some minor ones. There were some, I mean, that's a long time, 1789 to 1928. A lot of water in the bridge. A lot of things happened. The first major revision of the American prayer book happens in 1928. Some of you are Episcopalians old enough to remember having grown up with this. This prayer book was, was altered and was part of what was uh, kind of rising and in vogue in the late 1800s and the early 1900s that captured the spirit of the day theologically. Um, and then some things happened in the 20th century. Some theological reflection happened, some liturgical movements that prized ecumenism and reconnection between various denominations, but also a connection to some more ancient liturgies that they viewed as not fully discovered or appreciated by someone like Thomas Cranmer. And so in 1979, we have the, the second major American prayer book revision. Some of you, again, are, have been Episcopalians long enough to remember when that was laid out for you uh, in the local church. And it took probably decades for some churches to be able to work through the transition because it was such a change. It was the first time that you could have alternate rites, which is why uh, up until 79, you didn't have this thing that Episcopalians say like rite one and rite two, because there weren't options for the communion liturgy. There was just one. Um, there weren't options for morning prayer. There was just one. So uh, that's kind of bringing us up to speed a little bit. 
The tension in the Anglican tradition, I'm going to move through this really fast. In the 1500s, the founding of the Church of England was a robustly Protestant vision. If you hear this language with historians or ministers who talk to you about the history of Anglicanism, they will often use these two Latin words. They will say via media, and they will say that the Anglican church is a via media between, and then they will fill out that blank. Usually, if you're living in the 21st century and hear a minister, the next words that they will say is, is Anglicanism is a via media between Protestantism and Catholicism. We're like the middle road. That was not the review. Uh, that was not the, the view of the reformers in the 16th century. That's not the church that they were founding. If you read their founding documents, if you read the articles of religion, if you read some of the, the canons that they were developing, and certainly if you look at the 1552 and 1662 prayer books, you see something decidedly Protestant, such that if you were to ask the, uh, the original architects of the prayer book and the original theologians who sets the Church of England in motion, what is Anglicanism... It, they wouldn't even use that word. They would just say the church in England, the church of England. What is the sort of theological outlook of the church of England? They would say, we would like to describe ourselves more as a via media between, I'll say, Wittenberg and Geneva. A via media between the two dominant Protestant traditions. We want to be a, a strongly robust, reformation-based, gospel-centered expression of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That's how they would have described it. So in modern language, we might say that Anglicanism historically understood, and the way that the, the sort of path, the, the, the tributary that Advent wants to uh, understand itself in, is a via media between a Lutheran understanding of the scriptures and a Reformed understanding of the scriptures. Right in between, or better yet, kind of straddling the two, overlooking them, is Anglicanism at its, at its best. As the centuries developed, Church of England kind of switched and moved around. Varying ministers became uh, powerful and influential. Various movements occurred. One of those movements in the 1600s under Archbishop William Laud is worth pointing out to you historically. If you were to investigate him, you'd realize this was the first sort of surge of tempered but anti-Protestant feeling in the Church of England was when this came out. The second time that there was really a, a big wave of, of anti-Protestant, it's more than feeling. It's a wanting to recover a theology. It's wanting to recover something before Protestantism, before the Reformation, was what happened in the mid and late 1800s called the Oxford and Tractarian Movement. Uh, because it was sort of birthed out of Oxford, and these people won the technological battle of their day, because as they were arguing theology, it was the Tractarians who would pass out little booklets, little tracts, that uh, beat all the big fat tomes that the Protestants were writing at the time, you know. People might read a tweet before they'll read Desiring the Kingdom, right? People might read a little Bible quote before they read the book of James or something like that. And the, the Tractarians won the technological battle. And they won the hearts of the Church of England. Check out these dates, mid to late uh, 1800s. Now, do any of you know when Advent was founded and when we were built? 1873, 
church burned, and the building was rebuilt in 1883 to 1885. Now, our own building is an architectural lesson in what was dominant in Anglicanism at the time it was built. If you look at the architecture here, um, this, is a, this is right in line with what was really in vogue at the time. A pulpit off to the side, communion table elevated in front and center. Um, and before the communion table, some of you have been around Advent long enough to know this, that the communion table used to be pushed up against the wall. They wouldn't say it was pushed up against the wall. They would say it was coming out of the wall because Larry Gibson, is that right? Larry Gibson, under some ire, uh, had it moved out. And that was a, that was a Protestant move. Uh, there's, I can't get into it right now. I'd love to explain why that was. But you can look at our building and look at the era and know you, you can read some things about our own history and about the history of Anglicanism in our architecture. That was one of the amazing things that I saw when I was in uh, England last year. A, a dear friend who's a professor at Cambridge took me basically behind the scenes everywhere. I got to see all these wonderful cloisters and all these chapels. And he walked me through the uh, architectural renovations of these chapels in the medieval era, renovated in the, in the Reformation. Some of them had add-ons during the Laudian movement. Some of them had subtractions and add-ons during the Tractarian movement. It's fascinating to see the cuts in the walls and the new stone and the old stone because it tells a story of theological struggle. Ultimately, what I'd say is for the gospel, right? So I want to point out these things to you again to show you that uh, it's a complex thing to talk about the prayer book and what we're about in our day and age. The theology is really what I want to zone in on for a second. The central question being asked in the Reformation was how are people actually changed? Because the Reformers looked and said the church is doing a great job of creating guilt-based conformity, but I'm not seeing a lot of real change and when I read the scriptures, I read something of a heart change. And in fact, that's what God is interested in, is taking out your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh in the words of, uh, of the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He wants to give you new birth. He wants you to be born again. He doesn't want to change your behavior, you know, just for that sake. He doesn't want a, a happy sheen on an otherwise empty tomb. God wants dry bones to come alive. And so... Uh, they were asking, how are people changed? Luther was asking that question when he was wrestling with the scriptures, right? The conclusion that they came to upon this rediscovery of the gospel is that people are changed by a work of God in the heart. I know that sounds basic, but that was not, and because of our flesh, brothers and sisters, continues to not be intuitive. It's always something that's not intuitive, that I need a change from the inside out by a work of God in the heart. And the question for the reformers was also, how does God do this work? He does this through his word, particularly in the gospel, through the declaration of the gospel in 10,000 ways, through the work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. That's the way that people are changed. It's not by browbeating them and how bad they are. That might get them to confess, but that has no power to actually make them change. That was their rediscovery upon reading the scriptures. So the driving force behind the Reformation, and therefore the driving force behind a Reformation understanding of worship, which, because we believe that the Reformation was recapturing a reading of the scriptures, Bible-based stuff, 
driving force behind this can be summarized in this statement. The word of God births faith. If I'm going to really trust, really rely, really love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's going to come through the word of God birthing it in me, not by any effort of my own. It's going to come through receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word of God births faith. This is going to get real practical real fast when we walk through our liturgy together. But a little diagram, right? God comes, arrow down, God gives his word first, always. We don't sort of get our way to God. We are helpless, dead in our trespasses and sin, as Paul says. God's word comes to us declaring, let me reveal to you your salvation, your need of Jesus, and who he is that has come to rescue. That's the word of God coming at us. Some of the reformers use the language of law and gospel to describe the the kind of twofold work of that word. The word of God comes at us, and we, in response, by virtue of that word coming, Give our faith that God has planted in us. It's a gift of God, Ephesians 2 says. Give our faith back to God. We trust you. And out of that faith comes love and good works, right? That's the basic diagram. So, the word of God births faith. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. The word of, listen to this language. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Highlighting some language here. Thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden. What does this sound like to you? Sounds like the opening prayer of our communion liturgy. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known and from whom No secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit to the end, to the production of what faith produces, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. See, right at the get-go of the communion liturgy is an indication of the theology that's coming at you. The word of God is about to be unfolded in this service through prayer, through scripture, through preaching, through singing, through sacrament. It's going to fly at you, and it's going to give you the very faith that you could never give yourself. And more precisely, Romans 10 reminds us that faith comes through hearing. This is really important because both physically hearing and spiritually hearing is going to become a key item for the way that we engage the liturgy together. Again, how did I describe what we're doing in this class? I want to give you hearing aids so that as you see the bread and the wine, and as you taste them, you're hearing spiritually the gospel. You know, as you hear the sermon or the scriptures being read, or as you go through some portions of this liturgy, you're hearing with your spiritual ears the gospel. You see, what's the posture of a Christian? This is the posture of a Christian. What does the Christian life look like? It looks like this. God, I receive from you. It's, called, it's what Luther called the vita passiva, the receptive life, the passive life, although that's not the best translation. It's more that we receive it, not passively, but we receive it. It comes to us. So the word of God births faith. Now the fun part, little quiz here. Various sections of our liturgy illustrate how this works, that the word comes first, and then we 
shoot faith back up to God. In our morning prayer liturgy or in Holy Communion, we have the scripture cycle, right? Some lector, praise God, gets up there and reads the scriptures to us. What happens? What's the next thing we do after the scripture cycle? Does anybody know? The creed, just like we did today. Right after the scriptures are done, we say, I believe. What is that? The word of God comes at you, and you respond in faith. That's one gospel groove for you. That's the way the word of God is working, all right? How about, what do we do often after a sermon? What happens next? What? Offering. Interesting. The word of God comes at you. And the next thing to do after God has declared that you need Jesus and I give him to you wholly, what's left to do? Jesus, I give my whole life to you. It's kind of like one of the various sections in our service that's an Episcopalian version of an altar call. The offertory is a place not merely to put money in a plate, for goodness sake. That's just a token and a symbol of your whole life being said, God, I offer myself, Romans 12, as a living sacrifice upon your altar, the world. Take me and use me. That's what that pattern is about. After you hear in morning prayer, the declarate, you've confessed your sin, and you hear a declaration of forgiveness. You are forgiven. What do we do next? Oh Lord, open thou our lips. I've been shut until this time. I've been dead in my trespasses and sins. Oh Lord, open thou our lips. And what do you say? And our mouths shall show forth thy praise. Right? All that's left to do, the good, faithful Christian, when they hear about the gospel, is to simply go, praise God. Praise God for Jesus. I'm alive. I was dead. You know, I once was blind, but now I see. Praise the living God. And so we open our lips, or God opens our lips in the words of Psalm 51. That's a quote from Psalm 51. Open thou our lips and our mouths shall show forth thy praise. And it comes after David's confession, interestingly. And the next thing we do is we sing a hymn. We sing a hymn, giving this faith back up to God. I trust you. I love you. I declare these truths about you. I adore you. See, worship is anything but heartless. Worship is anything but boring. What happens after the in Holy Communion? There's a declaration of, of pardon and assurance and remission of sins. And then we hear the comfortable words. These words, uh, come to me all you who are weary and travail, and I will refresh you. These other words that God gives us to tell us we're sinners, but God's a great Savior. What happens after that? We pass the peace. I know some Episcopalians hated it when it came in the 1979 prayer book, but interestingly enough, the 79 architects had intuited some of this word of God births faith stuff. They kind of got it. Because what peace is, even though it looks like some sort of robotic fake greeting that we're all doing, we don't really love each other, we just, uh, peace, 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 right? It doesn't have to be that way. Why? Because if the word of God is really doing its work in our life, not only do we have peace with God, not only are we reconciled with God, we have the ability to say, God's peace be with you. I can actually declare God's peace to someone else in a picture of the reconciliation that happens horizontally uh, as a result of the vertical reconciliation. So the word of God births faith and a picture of the fact that, that God's word, when it does its work, goes out into the world and reconciles, this is Corinthians language, reconciles the world to himself. Okay, in our morning prayer, we have a long stretch of prayers. And sometimes I don't know if we all notice the way it's moving. This is part of the skit that I'm going to do next week. Um, 
But the Lord's Prayer and suffrages, the suffrages are those, O Lord, show thy mercy upon us and grant us thy salvation. You know, and do thy ministers with righteousness and make thy chosen people joyful. It's just back and forth. But there are requests being made to God in the Lord's Prayer and the suffrages, the Word of God. And interesting, the suffrages are quotes of the Psalms. All of them are, are various quotes. So God's giving us the very words that we're to pray in his word. You know? Quotes, the words of word of God, we're praying to God, but it's really God's word coming at us in this section of the prayer. What happens next? The collect, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Do you notice how the tone once the collect hit changes to a little bit more personal, changes to a little more intimate? And then once we get to the, the part, where, part where the intercessor is praying these personal prayers, let us pray for the whole state of Christ's church in the world. Suddenly, we're praying requests. You know, there's an order to this. First, we're adoring God and, and uh, praising him, giving, giving him uh, his due in his word. And then God draws us in a little closer. We're praying more intimate prayers. Even there is a kind of vestige of this word of God births faith in response. Communion. What do we do after Communion. We pray the post-communion prayer, all right? So the word of God comes to us in sacramental form, where God says, I love you. You are my child. This is me, broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. I love you. Come to my table, O sinner. I'm reminding you of my goodness. And so we say these words where we, we respond by saying, we give you humble and hearty thanks all your goodness and loving kindness to us. These words of this post-communion prayer that we'll kind of exegete on week four are beautiful. I was just blown away by them again as I was saying them to God, remembering just how far it goes when it's, it's reminding us that it's only after communion that we present ourselves. It's only after God has first given us that we say, God, take all of me. So do you see all these various cycles of the way the word of God does its work of, of first coming to us, that repetition is meant to drive gospel grooves into your soul, to make you a gospel-shaped Christian. So the heart of the prayer book is to unleash the word of God, to convert your heart, convert your heart through the power of the gospel. That's really robust. Remember at the beginning of the class, I was talking about the fact that it's the temptation of us to sort of downshift our liturgical practices into mere ritualism. doesn't have to be that way, especially when we realize these cycles of the word of God birthing faith in us, giving us the very word that births the faith, that responds to God liturgically and says, God, take all of me again and again and again. We have hard hearts. We need God to take this chisel to us again and again by the power of his word to crack us open. Yes, crack us open, break us apart, and then put us together again in Christ. So the prayer book is filled with the scriptures. It's estimated that up to two-thirds of the language of the prayer book is direct scriptural quotation or allusion. So even the prayers that we pray are full of the very word of God. Why? Because we believe that the word of God has the power to change you and to change me. And particularly, it is that word that drives to who Jesus is and what he's done. The word of God, the gospel, it's its job to convert your heart. That means that I don't have to preach brow-beating sermons to the people of God. 
that my job as a minister of the word and sacrament is rather simply to week in and week out, maybe despite your flesh, to preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preach to you who Jesus is and what he's done. What are we going to preach the next week? Jesus. What are we going to preach the next week? Jesus. What are you going to preach to you die, Zach? Jesus. You're stuck with me, and you're stuck with Jesus, thank God. That's what we're here to do. We're going to preach that because I believe this. I, I have the same question that the Reformers did. How are you and I going to be changed? How are we actually going to become the kinds of people who love well, who live in this wor- world well? It's going to come through allowing the Word of God to do its work, to stand back and be a mouthpiece to declare what God has already done. And frankly, that's your job, priesthood of all believers. That's your job, priests, to declare the word of God to one another. So if you have a friend who's struggling and suffering, what's your job? Help them remember the promises that are in Jesus. If you've got a friend who's confessing their sin to you, ah, I'm so sorry. You know what? Let's put some sort of safeguards so this doesn't happen again. That might be part of it, but that's not the word that's going to change their heart. The word that's going to change their heart is, I'm here to remind you from one sister to another, that in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your transgressions from you to remember your sins no more. I'm here to tell you that. You're forgiven and you're free. You are God's child. Don't forget it, right? That's what we're here to do. And right then and there, you're a preacher. Right then and there, you are equipped and mobilized for the work of the ministry. All right, blitz, questions. <laughs> yes, sir. How, how does this represent the via media that you mentioned between Calvin and Luther? Yeah, great question. How does it represent the via media between Calvin and Luther? It, there's some nuances of sacramental theology. So it's, this would be something that I think Calvin and Luther would assent to collectively. So in a way, it's kind of a a gospel-centered, pan-Protestant vision. So it's both their vision. Now, when you start to drill down into the nuances of law and gospel, start to drill down into the nuances of the way the word works, there'll be some distinctions. But this, what I just described to you, is very Calvin Luther-oriented. Yeah. Well done. All right. I'll see you next week. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.